All right. Hey, we're going to be talking, continuing on about uh, David. And so we're going to be in 1 Samuel 24, if you'd like to turn there, but we'll be turning there a little later. And the title of this um, message is A Foolish Census and Its Consequences. So I just want you to think um, that your sin doesn't only affect you. I think this is something we should all think about before we choose sin. It would have been good for many, many people if David had thought about this. It would have been good for 70,000 people who died because of his foolish and sinful decision to take a census. I wonder if Adam and Eve would have chosen differently if they had known that every person who has ever lived and will ever live on earth would die as a result of their decision to eat from the tree. I think if we could see who are hurt by our sin, I am sure, or I would hope, that we would think differently about our decisions. Other people are affected by our sinful decisions. Spouses and children brothers and sisters in Christ, our co-workers, neighbors, friends, relatives, and many others are impacted by our choices, our sinful choices. We would do well to think about this before we choose sin. So how many times has this been said from the pulpit? Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You know who said that? Ravi Zacharias. And you know what happened to him. So know this. Each one of us here are capable of sinning and hurting others. For sin never announces itself to us with its full intentions. J.C. Ryle said this. We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I'm your deadly enemy and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh no, sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, like Joab with outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of Eden. Walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. Sin rarely seems like sin at first beginning. Let us watch and pray lest we fall into temptation. This should be a sobering thought for every one of us, and especially as we take a look at this morning's passage about David's foolish decision to take a census. So, if you would turn or are at 2 Samuel 24, we'll start there. So, let's pray. God, we just thank you for this time we can spend in your word. God, you pray that you would convict us just about the choices we make. Um, God, just help us to have wisdom and insight. God, help us honor you in all that we do, and we just pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, the events of David's life that we're going to talk about today are recorded in 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21. Uh, Those two narratives are similar, except for just a couple exceptions, Um, so we're going to be reading primarily from the 2 Samuel passage. And in summary, I'm just going to tell you what happens. Maybe you'll remember this story. You've read it before. If not, this is basically what happens. God was angry with Israel, and he caused David to take a census. 
Even though Joab told him not to, he did it anyway. After taking the census, he realized his mistake and confessed to God. God, Gad, the prophet, came to him and told him that he had sinned and that he could choose his own punishment. The choices were three years of famine, three months of running from their enemies, or three days of God's hand of judgment. He chose the three days and 70,000 people died. After God stopped the plague, he built an altar and offered a sacrifice. Okay, I will tell you as I started studying this passage, the first thing that got my attention were the questions I had right at the start that I found out that I found were difficult to answer. So the first question I thought as I read this passage is why was God angry at Israel? Okay? The second thing I thought about is why or who incited David to take the census? And the next was why was it wrong for David to take the census? Okay, maybe you would think the same thing. But it was interesting to me, these are questions that the passage had no specific answers to. Never said. It just said this, God's mad at Israel. He incited David to take a census and taking the census was wrong. How come? I don't know. Didn't say. Okay? But it just made me think this. Guess what? You don't need to know everything to trust God and walk in obedience to him. That seems to be with the, prob the big problem with Christians today. If I don't get it, I don't have to do it. But God didn't give answers to these three questions. I'm going to maybe give you some thoughts of mine, but I don't know if it's true. But it doesn't really matter. So why was God angry with Israel? I don't know, but I thought about this. God was just mad at them. He didn't give an explanation as to why, but then he didn't need to. He is righteous and they were not. He doesn't need to defend himself. He doesn't need to explain himself. And he could have given a million reasons why he was mad at him, if he actually wanted to. So here's a question we all can answer. Are you frustrated or angry with God when you don't understand something? Is that your reaction? Do you think you need an explanation? Uh, as difficult as this might seem, God does not owe you or me or anyone else an explanation. If and when we come to understand that he has a million reasons to be angry with us and yet has not judged us, this understanding should cause us to worship him. We don't need to come to him in anger and frustration. We need to come to him in repentance and faith. This is one thing that he has explained to us and which is the first thing we need to respond to, though, and this is a gospel. So I'm just going to ask you this. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand God has told you that you're a sinner and separated from him? Romans 3.23, I'm going to try to make it a little more personal. Personal. Yeah. You'll understand what I mean. For I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you. Can you say that? Do you know that? Do you know that you have sinned 
and you are far short of God's glory. Uh, God has told you that your sin must be punished and the punishment is an eternity in hell. For the wages of my sin is death. Do you know that? The wages of my sin is death. God has also told you that Jesus came to die on the cross in your place by taking your punishment and giving you his righteousness. Romans 5, 8 says, but God showed his own love for me in this. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Do you understand that? And that God has told you that you must repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus for forgiveness. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If I declare with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. For it is with my heart that I believe and am justified. It is with my mouth that I profess my faith and am saved. Like uh, Sebastian said this morning, if you have not repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ today, I would encourage you to do that. And I want to stop right now and I just want to pray. Okay? I just want to pray. So let's just bow and pray. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not responded to you in repentance and faith, that today would be the day they would humble themselves before you, repent of their sin, turn from their unbelief, and put their faith in Jesus. God, speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that was my first, that was one confusing question. Then I had another one, who incited David to sin? So if you look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, it says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and incited David against him, saying, go number Israel and Judah. But if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 21, Verse 1 does not say the same thing. It says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Like, dang, what's up with that? So after some study and reading some stuff and talking to Adam, who gave me some insight too, I came to this point of, of, I believe that because of the people's sin, God used Satan as his instrument of wrath by tempting David to sin and then bringing judgment on the people. Okay, so let me just repeat that again. I believe that because of the people's sin, God used Satan as his instrument of wrath by tempting David to sin and then bringing judgment on the people. Okay, and then I thought, this, this reveals two incredible truths about God. The first truth is this. God can and does use the temptations that Satan brings to accomplish his purposes and to do us good. This is incredible, and it displays the power of God over every other power in heaven and on earth. There is no power greater than God. Satan cannot mess up God's plan. You guys, that is incredibly encouraging. That is incredible. No, Satan's not going to get in the way of God. And then the second truth, The Lord is able to use both good and evil human acts for his purposes without in any way diminishing human responsibility for the deeds themselves. Could David have said the devil made me do it? No way. He did it. David was absolutely responsible for the decisions he made and God was absolutely right in his response. Period. 
God is sovereign. God's sovereignty, God's sovereign will did not excuse David. David was accountable to God to follow him in faith and obedience no matter what. Hey, we too are absolutely responsible for the decisions we make. God is absolutely just in his responses to our decisions. God's sovereign will does not excuse us. We're responsible to follow him in faith and obedience no matter what. I wanted to read this quote from a guy from Legionnaire Ministries. And here's what he says. He says, together these passages make an important theological point. The Lord is ultimately in control of all temptations that come to us and those to which we give in. Jesus told Peter that Satan desired to sift him like wheat, that is, to subject Peter to severe temptation. However, Jesus prayed for Peter, not that he wouldn't be tempted or wouldn't sin, but that his temptation and failure would not destroy his faith. Satan comes against us like a roaring lion who seems ready to swallow us alive, but he has no more power over us than he has been given, and God's grace is sufficient for us in the midst of our failure, just as it was for David. God is able to enhance his own glory and our good even through our greatest sins, which he uses to humble us and make us more grateful for the gospel. This is good news for great sinners like us. That is fantastic news. As we experience the sovereign will of God and understand our responsibility before him for our choices, we should be humbled before him and give him thanks. As we will discover, this is what David did. And then the following two verses describe this tension between the sovereign will of God and the responsibility we have for our choices. In Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, their choice, but God meant it for good, his will, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's will, man's choice. In Acts 2.23, Peter, in preaching his first sermon, makes reference in this in talking about the crucifixion. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, his will, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, their choice. This tension between the will of God and the choice of man. God will hold us responsible for the choices we make. It is important how we respond to God. So just a few things to remember. First, you, me, all of us are responsible for our choices. It is not God's fault and it's not the devil's fault. We're going to be held responsible, and God is just. Second, God doesn't know us an explanation. He's God. If you could understand everything about God, he would cease to be God. He doesn't owe us an explanation, and we won't be able to understand it all anyway. And third, even Satan serves the Lord's purposes. That is fantastic, and that's hilarious, I think. I think that's funny. Like, Satan thinks he's doing these things. Oh, yeah, I'm winning. No, he's not. He's playing right into God's hand. That, that, that is great. I love that. So I was just, you know, I could probably quit now, and you would all have plenty to think about and talk about over lunch. 
but I still have some time to fill, so I'll keep going. Okay, the third question I had was, what was so bad about taking a census? Like, what's the big deal? Guess what? Passage doesn't say. Doesn't say. So, you know, I thought, well, maybe it's because God was the only one that could call for a census to be taken. Maybe that was it. Or maybe David failed to collect the tax that was required when you're supposed to take a census. You can read about that in Exodus 30. Or maybe it was because God was, or David was proud of his great army or afraid of his enemies. Or whatever the reason, he ordered a census to be taken and that was not the right thing to do. Again, God doesn't owe us an explanation. So I just challenge you now that you know this, what if you spent more time repenting of your sin than accusing God of mistreating you? Or how about this? What if you spent more time trusting God's will than questioning it? Or how about what if you spent more time living by faith rather than looking for reasons not to? What if you just did some of those things? As I thought about and looked for an answer for each of these three questions, I don't know if I figured it out, but I do know that I've come to better understand that God is God and I am not. Rather than continually questioning him, I need to do a better job of trusting him. For whatever reason, God was mad at Israel. However it happened, David was tempted to take a census. Why this was a foolish decision, I'm not sure. However, this brought God's wrath down on the nation. Yet David had an opportunity right from the beginning to avoid this whole mess. The whole thing could have played out differently if David had not foolishly rejected Joab's counsel. So if you look at uh, 2 Kings 24, we're going to read verses 2 and 3. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are while the eyes of the Lord the king still see it. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? David had some good people around him. One of them was the prophet Nathan who had recently confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. Now Joab came and gave him some good advice. Should have listened, but he refused. Isn't that just like us? That's so much like us. But I want you to think, who are the trusted people God has placed in your life that you need to listen to? Who is it? Maybe you need to listen to your spouse. Maybe you have a good friend you need to listen to. How about the elders? But you know the problem is you've got to humble yourself to hear. I think David's issue was his pride. He didn't want anyone telling him what to do. Guys, that's so like us. David didn't listen. But although he ignored Joab, he couldn't ignore his conscience. So look at verse 10. <clears throat> after hearing that, David was conscience, conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. 
conscience. He rejected Joab's counsel, but he couldn't reject his own conscience. I want you to encourage you to listen to that. Listen to the voice of God. Guys, don't say no. And it was good that David finally listened and that he repented. But his decision to refuse Jacob's counsel and go forward with his census would have serious consequences. The next morning, Gad came bearing the bad news. Israel would suffer for their sin, for his sin. So, 13, let's read verse 13, 2 Samuel 24. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come to you... Shall there come to you three years of famine in your land or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague on your land? Now then, think it over and decide. How should I answer the one who sent me? I love the answer David gave. Look at verse 14. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. Wow. David had a terrible choice to make, but what great insight and wisdom he made it with. The weather can be merciless, like we live in Iowa, we know that. Men can be merciless, we've all experienced that, but God, God's mercy is great. How often does he, does he not give us what we deserve? Why wouldn't he put himself under the mercy of God? God shows us mercy all the time. And David knew the mercy of God because he experienced it over and over again. We've been studying about David. Wow, all mercy, mercy, mercy. <clears throat> Do you understand the mercy of God? And are you willing to fall into the hands of God Trusting is mercy alone. It is, a, it is absolutely the wisest and best thing that you can do. I would encourage you to treasure God's mercy, for it is great. Here's Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler, the kingdom, the air, the spirits who now at work and those are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. We can rest in the mercy of God. We can trust in the mercy of God. We can, we can put ourselves into the mercy of God. Titus 3, 3 through 7. At one time, we, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I will guarantee you the weather will disappoint you. I will guarantee you that people will disappoint you. God's mercy will never disappoint you, ever. Don't be afraid to trust in it. So, because of David's sin, God brought judgment. Judgment just as he said he would. Look at verse 15. 
So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. But in his mercy, he relented. Look at verse 16. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel, who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. Have you ever thought about what you deserve for all of your sin? Have you ever thought about that? For every sinful thought, for every uh, hurtful word, for every selfish act, for every outburst of anger, for every lie and deception, for all the wasted time pleasing the desires of your flesh, for being lazy, for loving the things of this world, for your indulgences and lack of trust. If it weren't for the mercy of God, not one of us would be here today in this gymnasium. Do you understand the treasure, the mercy, and grace of God is? If you don't, you need to. This is when I always got to put my plug in for the first meeting. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, and I probably told you this a hundred times, I've sat in that meeting for over 30 years. That's when you know the mercy and grace of God. When you think on the cross. That, you've, you've got to let God put that deep in your heart. The cross of Jesus Christ. We have opportunity every Sunday. We set aside time for us to meditate on the grace and mercy of God. Here's what John Piper said. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and power and our only boast in the world. This should be our daily prayer, a word from Amy Carmichael. God, hold us to that which drew us first when the cross was the attraction and we wanted nothing else. Treasure the mercy of God. It is the greatest gift in the universe. And the Sip Club at Panera is right behind. It is worth giving up all to find. David found this mercy, and when he saw it, he did two things. He repented, and he worshiped. First, he repented. Look at verse 17. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. You know what he did? He admitted his sin. And look, he was the shepherd. And those that he was called to lead, he led to their slaughter. His sin did not just affect him. Think about it. He sinned and didn't die. He didn't die. 70,000 people died. Man, that just made me think, who have I been called to shepherd? Who have you been called to shepherd? Your spouse, your children, the brother, sister you're mentoring, your neighbor? I don't know. Are you shepherding well? 
Part of that shepherding is your obedience to Jesus. Your sin affects those you shepherd. Are you living in holy obedience for the glory of God and for the sake of your sheep? Please do it. <clears throat> then he worshiped. Let's read verse 22 and 24. Aruna, Aruna, well that's it. I had to listen to this on the U version a whole bunch of times to make sure I didn't slaughter this name. But it says, Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Wow, what an attitude. Is that your attitude toward God? Are you giving God your best? Giving your best usually means you're giving God something that costs you. That is what David understood. That is what God is worthy of. This is worship. How many of us fail at this? So I just want to finish by going to the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so if you would turn to Malachi chapter 1, and I'd like to start reading at verse 6. This idea of giving God your best giving a sacrifice that's worthy of God. Um, God says to the people here in Malachi, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I'm a father, where is the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. When I read this, I just remember that I'm a priest. And I feel like God is directing, direct, talking directly to me. Peter wrote in the second chapter of his first letter, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Then continuing on in Malachi, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? The priests and the people were offering what I call goodwill worship. And that kind of worship is offensive to God. So what is goodwill worship? Well, before you make a trip to goodwill, you look through your house for things you don't want anymore. And instead of throwing them out, you take them to goodwill. Then you feel like you've done a really good thing. That is exactly what the people were doing. The lamb with a deformed leg was no good to them. So I'll give it to God. They had to get rid of it anyway. Why throw it away? Why not give it to God? That is goodwill thinking. Let's just give him the leftovers that we don't want anyway. That won't cost us anything. Why would we treat God like this? When we wouldn't even treat anybody else like this. 
<laughs> Could you imagine your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Hey, I found this ring in the, cra- in the box of Cracker Jacks. I may as well give it to you. Save me from having to buy another one. Like, who, or you would say to your boss that you were too tired to show up on time today. Oh, how about you tell your coach that the time for practice just didn't fit into your schedule? Or would you say to the IRS that you're not going to pay your taxes this year because you're a little short on cash? No. So why do you give excuses to God? Why do you give excuses like that to God? God is greater than your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Greater than your boss or coach. Even greater than the IRS. And yet we would never consider giving them anything but our best. But God, heavens, we have a long history of giving him our unwanted leftovers. So, how about this? Next time you go to Goodwill, go out and buy a brand new pair of shoes and take them. Then pick up a brand new suit, and while you're out there, you could get a brand new set of dishes and take that to Goodwill. We'd never think about doing this. We are hard-pressed to give to God what costs us something. But, I lo- but we're going to keep reading in Malachi. But God was angry. Look at verses 10 and 11. Malachi 1. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple door so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Here's what God says. Just stop coming. Just stop. I wish someone would just put a lock on the door and not let these people come in and continue to offer these worthless sacrifices. You know what? Not giving your best is like giving nothing. Because God doesn't care for anything but your best. Because nothing's worthy of God except your best. You know, this is one thing that David got right. He got a lot of things wrong, but he understood that offering, he understood that any offering that he would give to God that cost him nothing would not be a worthy sacrifice. He would pay for all that was necessary to make that sacrifice. His offering would cost him something or it really wasn't an offering at all. Here's a question. Have you figured that out? Is that how you're living? Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Wow. Malachi 2, verse 3. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. Okay, here it is again. Our sin will affect others. Those following after us will suffer for our lack of not giving our best to God. Our sin will affect others. Those following after us will suffer for our lack of not giving our best to God. And look at the punishment. 
poop on their faces and thrown into the trash heap. God is serious. We need to give him our best. He's worthy of that. We need to quit giving him our leftovers. Does your worship cost you? That makes it real. I will not offer to God anything that costs me nothing. There is a treasure to be had, and it's worth your all. Jesus said in Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Question, what are you willing to pay? Let's pray. God, we just thank you uh, for your word. God, we thank you that you are a great God. God, we thank you that um, all you do is righteous. And God, that you are the greatest power in the universe, far more powerful than your greatest enemy. And so God, we just pray that we would understand your mercy. God, that we would honor you for your greatness, and God, we would offer to you sacrifices that cost us because those sacrifices are worthy. So God, just um, encourage us, help us to understand the glory of the cross, and uh, just pray that you'd give us a great day today, keep us mindful of you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.